as we continue talking about the Holy Spirit, um, it is interesting, as we've been going through this, that various people, even people that have spent their whole lives being strong Christians, have come back to me saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever really looked at all these verses this way. I'm not, I'm not entirely certain. I, I know I've read all these things, but I'm not entirely certain I've, I've thought about the Holy Spirit quite so personally before. So what started off as a, hey, this would be, this would be helpful, has, has actually blossomed into people going, you know, I'm uh, kind of rethinking how I've been viewing a lot of this, which is a healthy thing, I think. Call me nutty. Anyway, so we have been talking about um, the Holy Spirit, especially we took, took some time talking about all the stuff that he's done and that his, his ministry was long before we ever came to Pentecost. But then last week we finally got to Pentecost because, you know, that's when he started doing stuff, right? Okay, thanks for your help. All right. So how actively involved, if you remember, was he before Pentecost? Okay, that was my fault for asking the question that way. Let me ask it again. How did God prepare his followers for the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was coming? When we looked at that first chapter of Acts, what sorts of things did he say? What, what uh, mental picture did he create? How did he prepare them? What did he do? You can also cheat and look in the, in the Gospels, or if you really want to cheat, you can tell me what we talked about in the Old Testament, too. Acts chapter 1, John chapter 20, Old Testament chapter anything. Well, Jesus did tell them tell that the Holy Spirit was coming. Absolutely. Actually, did he tell them that the Holy Spirit was coming? This is something that Sarah and I talked about last week. Right, it wasn't that he's coming, because obviously he was already... But they were going to be he was coming. There was a there was a there's a qualification that he said there. Yeah, like with power, because it wasn't the Holy Spirit was coming. He he'd been around right. since you know the beginning of Genesis, and the, and the disciples had even received the Holy Spirit already, right? And yet, and, 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 and I don't want to pick on Randy here because I said this. We all say this at one point or another. We talked about so the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. You know, really? Does the Bible ever say it that way? It's like, no! The Holy Spirit came with power. Not that he hadn't already been there, but now he was doing something different, which actually helps me out here. As a review, how was this baptism, this Holy Spirit coming in power, this being filled with the Holy Spirit, how do you want to phrase this in Acts chapter 2? How is that functionally different from when they had already received the Spirit of Christ's at uh, his post-resurrection appearance back in John 20. He breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit back in John 20. And then he said that the Holy Spirit's going to come in power, and he called it a baptism. John the Baptist said that the Holy Spirit is, is, is that he's going to baptize you with in power and fire. What's, what did we talk about? How is this baptism functionally different from having the Holy Spirit in you as a Christian? And I'm not even trying to get Pentecostal necessarily about this, because, you know, I don't want, in all seriousness, I, in all seriousness, I don't want to get denominationally odd about it. I just, why is this different? Yeah. Isn't it in the Old Testament, um, they say you're going to be living by the Spirit, it's going to be different. This is kind of the covenant. Mm -hmm. And we all have now <clears throat> a little different... Um, aspect of the Holy Spirit who gives us, who, you know, urges us to repent 
repentance. Sure. I'll be with you and I'll be your God kind of stuff. You see this in Joel, but also in Isaiah there were some mental pictures. What were you going to say? I was going to say, with Pentecost, and I thought this is where you were going first. To me, it reminds me a little bit more of the Old Testament because it's more of a momentary, it's a little too short, a few moment time that he came on in power to do a specific thing and to accomplish something very specific. It, it wasn't the overflowing that is always in our lives. Or that always should be. I would just, oh, just I will say um, the analogy that I've used a couple of different times is the Holy Spirit comes on you as when you become a Christian. We're told that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Think of a glass full of water. You're, you're, you've got the Holy Spirit. This is take that glass, throw it in the depths of the ocean. It's like it's filled to overflowing. Every part of the glass is being touched with this. It's and if if you could picture somebody being dumb enough to make a glass that's porous, <laughs> the glass itself is filled with water. You know, the, the physicality of the glass. It is utterly changed by the Holy Spirit. It's inundated. It's supersaturated in every sense of how you can... Lots of chairs. Feel free. Someone sitting next to nope. That's absolutely fine, too. Um, so, so when you're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here in chapter 2, and you're talking about um, the infilling of the Holy Spirit to overflowing, the supersaturation... You're talking about something where it's beyond just the Holy Spirit living in you as a Christian. You're talking about one of those times where, in multiple times in Scripture, the Holy Spirit came upon somebody with power, overwhelmed them, filled them up with the Holy Spirit, directed them in some of the ways that we talked about in the Old Testament. Even in some of the ways that you wouldn't have expected in the Old Testament. Oh, all right, okay. So what, do me a favor, read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Somebody. we got enough people, we'll just do another round robin. Sarah, why don't you start us off? When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Too far. Now, they, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So, what stands out to you as the most bizarre element or elements of this episode? When you hear those five verses, we talked about this last week, but just as a review, what, just personally, what are some things that jump out at you when you read that? Either that you say, huh, or I've always loved this, or how we want to look at it. The tongues of fire is always just interesting, but it's not super common that we read that. Not, not so much. Not so much. Well, the other thing was, if this is a closed upper room, where the strong, how does strong wind get in? And how to get out. <laughs> okay. Actually, that's an interesting thing. I think, Donna, I think you were the one that brought this up last week where you go, what house are they in? You know, it's like <laughs> that this is going on. And and I said last week, most commentators would say, I, this is probably one of the chunks of the temple, one of the side rooms, the Sunday school rooms in the temple where people would meet for their own personalized worship times. But it still comes in as like, well, it's not outside. No, what, 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 where, where did the sudden wind come from? And remember... What's the, in the Old Testament, the word for wind, ruach, the word for breath, and the word for spirit, it's all the same word, right? New Testament, word for breath, pneuma, the word for wind, the word for <coughs> spirit, it's all the same, right? So this idea of this, this mighty wind comes and pushes through, and you go, well wait, is that, is, that a, is that really actually a wind that they could feel? Is that God's breath, or is that God's spirit moving? And to a good Hebrew or a good Greek, they'd go, I don't understand the question. Is that his pneuma, his pneuma, or his pneuma? 
I don't get where you're going with that. So, what else? Anything else jump out at you? Um, obviously, he's speaking in tongues. That would be odd. That would be yep. That would be odd. Um, what else? What was it saying in verse five? A devout men from every nation under heaven. Now we talked about this before. Why? Why were there? Why were there devout Jews sitting there in the temple from everywhere? Yeah, it's Shavuot. It's the feast. It's it's Pentecost, which was a thing before capital P Pentecost. And one of the things of that uh, feast of first fruits was that everybody had to be at the temple, right? Everybody was supposed to come from every land. I don't care if you're coming from Timbuktu. You're supposed to be there that day and worship God. Present yourself as one of God's first fruits. So it's interesting that this was a day that God picked to do this. That everybody's coming from all over the world to be there. And amazingly, they hear their own language being spoken by people who are clearly not from Timbuktu. That's going to that's gonna matter a little bit, don't you think? So God picked this day to present this way to these people. How do you see God's Spirit working consistently? Through, through the Old Testament, through Acts chapter 1, through the Gospels, even into chapter 2 here. Is there a consistency to how you see him working? He always has a plan, doesn't he? I mean, one of the first things we talked about was we're, we're, with, with Jesus was when the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness, right? Why did the Holy Spirit lead him out into the wilderness? To be tempted. The Holy Spirit led him immediately after his baptism when God says, this guy, this is my son. Wow. Everybody sees this. Everybody hears this thunder. Boom. This guy. And the Holy Spirit said, Yay! I'm leading you out into the wilderness in order to be tempted. I'm not just leading you out into the wilderness. I have a plan. And ironically, my plan is that I already know what Satan's devious plan is. We talk about Satan being clever and crafty, and he's a lot smarter than you are and me. Yes. But Satan's whole plan is, Ah, while he's weak, I know. I'll tempt him, right? I have a plan. I will tempt him. I came up with this plan. Before he ever did that, why did the Holy Spirit lead him out of the wilderness? To be tempted. And he's like the best Mission Impossible episode. Jim Phelps already has it figured out before the bad guy does anything. Okay, I love the old, the old Mission Impossible show. And almost invariably during one of the episodes, right before they go to commercial break, the bad guy does something, and you go, oh, he outthought Jim Phelps. And they come back from the commercial break, and Jim Phelps goes, Wow, boy, you got me there. I guess we'll have to do the actual plan. And you just go, He's so smart. God is so much smarter than Jim Phelps, okay? Before Satan did anything in his master plan, God already had that master plan as part of, just a little sub-part of his overarching plan. Because the Holy Spirit always has a plan, right? He's always saying, you can make an argument, and many people have, that everything that led up to what actually happened at that Pentecost in the first century, all of their traditions of what the Feast of First Fruits, what Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, what all this was, everything was to lead up to this. 
even the centuries of weird myths that make no sense and are biblical. Like that when Moses gave his Ten Commandments speech to the people back in the Old Testament, that was at Pentecost. And his voice broke out into different tongues and 70 different tongues and people heard it in 70 different languages. Well, that doesn't even make any sense. They're all, they're all from Egypt. Why would it need 70? That's a weird tradition. Why on earth would you even have that weird myth tradition? Because the Holy Spirit always has a plan, right? All right. Somebody do me a favor. Read me Acts 2, uh, 2 5 through 13. Uh, I guess that's, that's you, Donna, as we move around. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God fearing the Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together at the wilderness, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much to drink. They've had too much wine. Okay. I'm sorry that she went up after me. Donna is an educated bright woman, and she's having trouble actually physically pronouncing the names of the places. What's Do you wish? Pontus? Pontus. It is Pontus? Okay. Picture these people going, how do these uneducated Galileans fluently speak my language from these places? It's like, if you go, I'm a little struggling to wrap my mouth around the names of some of these places, you go, but they're talking to how did they know they were Galileans? Just from, uh, what? Probably. We know it was a strong accent. People talked about it before as being a strong accent. So it's like, it's, it's not, well, they studied. You know, like, no. And they weren't wearing names. I'd go, Bob from Galilee. You know, it's like, no. But people were like, I'm hearing this. They're speaking Spanish with a southern accent. I mean, what? You, what, what? I like the Cretans and Arabs at the end, too. Yeah, it's like, No sense, and it is interesting though that you have a couple of different reactions. What two reactions do you get from people in verses 12 and 13? Amazed and perplexed. Amazed and perplexed. Well, yeah, there's some people who go, This means something, right? How is it that a whole bunch of Galileans are suddenly their heads are on fire, there's a wind inside, and they're speaking every language under the sun? This means something. And other people want to say, ah, I'm drunk. It's the first, of, it's the first uh, feast of first fruits. And it's not uncommon for people to be a little tipsy that morning. It, it wasn't, actually. So that's... Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, they're like, ah, bizarreness. I attribute that to being drunk. But yeah, they're on fire! <laughs> There's wind on the inside, and they're speaking in other tongues. How does, ah, they're drunk, answer that? <laughs> Seriously, why, why might people jump to that? I mean, 
One is that they may not even be looking in the room. They may have heard about it. They just got commotion. Must be drunk. I'm not really paying attention. Well, yeah. Well, even people today make up things. They see something they don't understand, and they blame it on something. Oh yeah. And they don't look for a logical explanation. Yeah. It's it's amazing the stuff that people throw out. I'm not even talking about spiritual stuff. It's amazing the stuff that something will happen. They'll go, ah, I blame Obama. Ah, I blame Trump. You, what could he possibly have to do with our Mars rover not working anymore? You know, ah, darn Republicans. He's like, wait, what? What? But I mean, it, but people do. They love to, to say, I am dismissing this because of my emotional preconception that I walked into this situation with. Right? I already have a sense of why I don't believe this. You know, yeah, but you do understand that that particular preconception doesn't actually answer what's going on here. Yeah. I don't think that's a yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a yeah, I'm sticking with my preconception. I don't, that doesn't answer anything. And yet, it's really a lot more comfortable than assuming this really is something amazing, isn't it? Why would people do this? Help me out. What reaction do you think that you would have had if you walked past that, that study hall, that, that Sunday school class that morning? Not exactly to your, your question. Oh, thank you. But there was this thing on NPR. It was a doctor talking. And she said that there was this patient full of cancer. And nobody said, hey, this is it. And all of a sudden, he came back and his cancer was cured. Nothing there. And she says, we uh, were all very confused. But then we decided that the chemo he had taken two months ago finally was doing its job. You know, but then, uh, but then she said something about, but we got to take a look. There's something to do spiritually, but she never mentioned Christ or anything. But that we had a spirit. There had to be something going on. It was a so interesting talk. I remember the reaction was, "Oh, it was the chemo from two months ago." Amazed and perplexed. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to be skeptical. Okay. Just because it's something that I can't categorize. Okay. I always, oh, sorry. Not next. Technically, she raised your hand, her hand before you started talking. I wanted to answer this way back, but when the Holy Spirit comes, I think there's amazing joy, and that's why they could have considered them drunk or whatever. Oh, I'm sure they were bouncing off the walls. Yeah. I guess I always, when I read the Bible, hope that I would have responded positively if I had actually been around when Christ was there or Pentecost. Um, but I suppose probably our reactions would be based on a little bit how much we're, we're primed for stuff, how serious that we've been taking what we'd already been given. Which brings up an interesting question. Everybody that was there was there for a worship service to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits, where God is bringing in people as his first fruits in an act of worship. And they would be talking about how... Um, how, how the Holy Spirit is going to be moving, how God is going to be changing us. They would be talking about Moses sharing the word of God, and probably even some people talking about his voice breaking into different tongues. So help me out. Even if you didn't out loudly answer my question of how you would have responded, what's your basic way of looking at a worship service that might have informed how you were looking at that that day? Because if you find yourself going, wow, that would have been... Amazing to watch, but rather disruptive. I came to do my worship 
and people are screaming and yelling in other tongues and bouncing off the walls in a side room, would I have been tempted to go, keep it down, please? I'm sorry, I'm trying to worship. I don't know what you people are doing. Would it have been, I'm skeptical, because this is so not what I was expecting, and so my immediate thought is, this isn't how I worship, this isn't what I'm assuming, therefore this isn't worship. Would you have been saying, because of everything I've learned my whole stinking life, this bizarre thing, I think I know what this is. Or at the very least, would you have sat there and said, what on earth is God doing over there? Which is not to say that every worship service should then be your head's on fire and you're bouncing off the walls, screaming in other languages. Even Paul's talking about, okay, Corinthians, keep, keep, keep it down a bit, okay? You know, God's not a God of disorder, and what you're doing is not honoring God. You're enjoying being on fire and bouncing off the walls. So, even if you go, oh, I totally wrap my head around this, does this then become the norm of worship? We go, it's not worship unless somebody's head is on fire and they're bouncing off the walls. In general, do we tend to walk into even a worship service with so many preconceived notions as to what God's supposed to do there, that if he's not doing that, we go, okay, he's doing something wrong. I'm sorry, have you ever seen somebody sit there and go, you know, I just didn't feel alive in this service, therefore I assume this church is dead. Conversely, have you ever seen somebody cross their arms and sit down because they just didn't like that song? I mean, how many preconceived notions do we have that prevent us from seeing the movement of God? Because it wasn't what we thought it was going to look like. I would suggest, maybe, before we cop by attitude one way or the other, do a little Bible study, if only in our head, and go, well, what do I know? What do I know about God? And is this still fulfilling scripture, maybe just in a way I haven't thought of? Holy Spirit's a big guy. I think it's just me. Funky little teaching moment. I want you to think about Peter. Before we read any other verses, I want you to stop and think about Peter. What do we know about what he was like when Christ had his earthly ministry with his disciples? What was Peter like? Impulsive. That's a good word. Anyone else? Very eager. Enthusiastic. He's the only guy that got out of the boat. Of course, the exact same passion and enthusiasm and eagerness that got him out of the boat is also the one that went, Wait, I can't walk on water! Hey, I'll attack the servant, chop off his ear, I'll defend you, Jesus! You go, impulsive, eager, that's great. Not what I wanted you to do, though. Congratulations, Peter. And, hey, let's build tabernacles, all three of you. Again, most oft-phrased, the oft-used phrase by Jesus not sitting in your Bible is, no, Peter, stop, think, um, which Peter did intend to do. What do we know about what he was like during the passion of the Christ? Very vocal that I'm going to support you all the way to the end. Why? How can the same guy do this now? Yeah! Hey, you've heard me say this. Emotion's a wonderful thing. It's a great motivator. If you don't have emotion and passion in your relationship with Christ, you're like a ship pointed the right direction, moving nowhere in the middle of the ocean, right? And if you say, I've got all the passion and emotion and enthusiasm in the world, no rudder, you know, but all the passion, then man, you make good times somewhere. I don't know where you're going. You might not even be going the same direction tomorrow that you were today, but man, you're making good time. Ideally, what you want 
is the emotion and the passion and the, and the enthusiasm for Christ that's moving you forward and the wisdom and discernment that's moving you forward in the right direction. You know, both of those at the same time would be it's one difference. But you go, how could Peter be so excited about doing anything Christ wants him to do before the passion and so enthusiastic about who's Jesus? I've never even heard of the guy. Seriously, no, I'm not going in. Why? I'm British. Listen to my accent. You know, it's like, no. How can he be this guy? Because it's the same guy, right? He's doing it for the exact same reasons. Whatever I feel right now, I do that to the nth degree. And he's a perfect example of the dangers of that. So what do we know about what he was like immediately after Christ's resurrection? He was old, old Peter. Because the Bible even talks about, you know, John's younger than him, made better time. <clears throat> old Peter running to the open tomb, right? And where John stopped, Peter just barreled right in. Peter jumping out of the boat going, I know this guy, I know this guy, I know this guy. And yet, what was the conversation they had on this on the seashore with, with Jesus? Yeah. I'm so repentant. And Jesus says three times. Why does Jesus say three times? If you actually love me, why don't you feed my sheep? Why don't you feed my little lambs? Why three times? Yeah. Now, is that because... This is total speculation. Work with me. Is that because Jesus said... Because you sin three times, you have to repent three times, because that nullifies each sin. Each repentance nullifies a given sin. If not, then that suggests that Jesus didn't ask him three times for God's sake. So why did he ask him three times for Peter's sake? What light bulb? Inside Peter. Yeah. Oh, I denied three times. God's definitely asking me again to start thinking. Yeah, I mean, there's that cumulative thing. Seriously, are you thinking about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you thinking about Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you thinking about this? Yes, I'm thinking about this. But it's also, I denounced you three times. And we dealt with that three times. We're cool, right? The moment you said, my Lord, I'm so repentant, I was like, we're cool. But just like, just like when I said, who, who touched me? Oh, I, I didn't. I didn't need to find out what woman touched me in the crowd, but she needed me to know what woman touched me in the crowd. She needed to know that I knew. Let's talk about this three times, because I know what's going on in your heart. Somebody do me a favor. Read John twenty nineteen through twenty two, and think of Peter being there. I don't know who's next. I've lost track. Christy, how about you? You look like you're there. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw him. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he came them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So think about Peter being there. Peace be with you. Here, look at peace be with you. Here, take my spirit. Here, I want you to go. 
Think about Peter being there. How would that have changed? Should receiving the Holy Spirit change things in someone like Peter? Someone like Peter. I mean, unlike Thomas, unlike Andrew, Peter renounced Christ. Is there any coming back from that? I would think he would, wouldn't you? Do you remember that in our church history class? Wasn't that a big issue, especially back in the Roman persecution, where the early bishops were like, if somebody actually renounces Christ, do they get to come back? If they if they are genuinely repentant, do we do we let them come back? Remember that? To somebody like Peter, who renounced Christ, even though he had been a disciple, does he get to come back? Somebody read me 1 Samuel 10, 6. First person to get there, start reading it. Samuel talking to Saul. In the spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them, and be changed into another one. So is the Holy Spirit in the habit of taking somebody and changing them internally? That's something he's been doing just since Pentecost? Oh, oh well, just in the New Testament? How have you let the Holy Spirit change you? Help me out here. How are you fundamentally different than you were before you were a Christian? Or if you say, oh, that was very long ago, fine. How are you fundamentally different than how you would be living right now as a non-Christian? And I go to church and I read my Bible, don't count. How are you fundamentally different than you as a non-Christian? You have a conscience. Now, I think there are non-Christians, though, that do have conscience. I mean, they do have a sense of morality, because we're all sculpted in the image of God. Gandhi was very open about the fact that he was not a Christian. He had a very strong sense of conscience in right and wrong. But yes, our conscience is beyond that. There is a, there's a sense of, with the Holy Spirit in us, a, a, a connection to a higher morality, a morality bigger than just what we as a collective think is a good thing. What else? How have you been changed? How do you live differently than you would functionally non-Christian? I, I don't want to just rip on people. And, 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 so don't want people to go here. Don't want you just to, to talk about, well, they're bad. How are you functionally different inside? I don't make decisions. I know I still have the exact same sense that I've always had my whole life of frustration when things don't go the way they should. When, when I'm like, I see what it can be, I, I see what it should be, and it's not that. And it drives me bonkers. And you could say it's because I'm being judgmental, you can say that's because Pastor Kevin's a little OCD. You can say that from a number of different angles. But the fact remains, it drives me nuts when I see what should be and isn't. Wendy will tell you. It's more than just a grumpy, grump, grump, great. It's like, there's no reason why this should be this way. This person is sticking a fork in their eye, and they know that that hurts, and they beg to not do that, and they keep doing it. And when I say, well, don't, 
don't do that. They say, I know. If only my wife wouldn't thump and stick a fork in his eye. And it drives me bonkers. And yet, I know that even though I have that same feeling that I've had, there's a part of me that goes, if I have a sense of what things should be, and I'm watching people I care about hurting themselves by doing other than what they were sculpted to do, how much more does God see that? Who did the sculpting? How much more does God see that and say, I know what could have been. I don't suspect what could have been. I know what I made you for. And I see every facet of everything that's going on here. And it hurts my heart. But I'm willing to die to help you not stick a fork in your eye. I'll love you. And so at my best, as a Christian instead of a non-Christian, I find myself going, I need to be more like my Lord in here. And a second ago, I was thinking I was being like my Lord. What was wanting things to be the way that they're supposed to be? But what he did was say, I'm willing to do anything to try to help it be the way it's supposed to be. How do I minister to you instead of how, how do I smack you for being such a bonehead that you stuck a fork in your own? And it changes the way I look at things. I don't know. Don't, hopefully I've given you tons of time to think about how you would answer this question. Of Am I functionally, fundamentally different? Do If I were a non-Christian, would I make excuses for my actions or the actions of other people and say, well, well yeah, it's okay because... But I don't do that as a Christian? Or do I still do that as a Christian? As a non-Christian, I would be so scared that I might die here. But as a Christian, I say... Go to heaven. Why would I be scared of this? Dying doesn't sound like any fun. Being dead sounds like a blast. Or do you say, no, pretty much still scared of death the same as I would be if I were a non-Christian. I don't know. If I were a non-Christian, I would be totally focused on finances and stressed. But as a, non, uh, as a Christian, I say, oh, wait, God takes care of the lilies of the field. Why would, I, why would I be scared about my own finances and things? Why would I fret? I'm not, plus, it doesn't help me. Or as a Christian, do I pretty much do the exact same thing? I don't know. Are you fundamentally different? Holy Spirit has been changing people, you know, for literally decades. Thank you for laughing. Um, for a long, long time! Has he changed you? Yes! He's fundamentally moved you from death to life. Yes! He has washed you clean from sin. Yes! He has given you God's righteousness. Has he changed you and how you look at things? Somebody else, do me a favor. Acts chapter 2, 14 through 21. Again, I, I guess uh, Kitty. All right, whoever wants it. First person to get there. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 7, 21. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. 
Okay, so being familiar with the prophecy that Peter is quoting here from Joel, sitting in the temple of God, sitting there on Pentecost, with everything, all the healthy baggage that comes with that as a Jew, what would the crowd be expecting? You just heard him quoting Joel. Remember when we talked about what Joel was talking about? You're sitting there at Pentecost. What do you think is going on? Have you ever thought about that? It didn't look like what they thought it was Okay, what did they think it was going to look like? They were looking for the smoke and the blood and the fire and the prophecy. Mm -hmm. But that's not what they got. Clearly the prophecy is wrong, right? Apparently there isn't blood and smoke, bills of smoke and judgment and battles and things at the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? Either that or this isn't the great and terrible day of the Lord that Joel's talking about. But the basic idea is still jiving with what Joel was talking about. That the Holy Spirit would be poured out on people. Help me out. This, if that's what they're expecting, if they're expecting this big judgment, this big God's going to come and sweep everything clean and cause judgment, what is, what's the reaction in verse 37? Somebody read verse 37. Nancy, read verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Okay, maybe I picked the, picked the wrong... Oh, I jumped it too. No, okay, then I might have picked the wrong one. What, let me look, flip through my Bible, because apparently I, I'm not bright. They said something around verse 37. Oh, well, anyway, while I'm thinking, why don't you answer the question? Why might they have, why might they have jumped to saying, well, what do we need to do? Why would it pierce their hearts? As he's quoting Joel, as, as, as they're saying all this, why do they go, wow, what do we need to do about this? As opposed to saying, wow, what a floor show. to come and wipe everything clean and and bring the righteous to him and wipe the slate clean of all the unrighteous and scour the earth with judgment and blood and fire and smoke and they go okay what do we need to do they used to sacrifice they're here that they of sacrifice what what did David do in his own psalm in the middle of his own psalm when he's like smite all the bad people and search me, O oh Lord, and make sure I'm not one of the bad people before you do the smiting. Not obnoxiously, but wait. Before I desperately desire all this judgment, if this is actually coming, maybe I should get my heart right. Maybe that draws my attention to that. What What do we need to do here? What is it that we need to uh, to do to, to, to change us? How does Peter respond in verses 38 and 39? What was next? Paul, I think you're next. 38 39? Yep. Do you want to read it? Yes, please. Okay. 
Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will do. If, if Joel was talking about salvation, everybody calling on the name of the Lord was going to be saved. If Peter's, from what you know about the concept of baptism we've talked about, from what you know about what Joel is saying, from what you know about Shavuot, from what you know about Peter, from what you know about the Holy Spirit, why does he respond this way? Tell me, what is baptism about prior to this? Either in Judaism or from John the Baptist. What's baptism always been about? Washing, but not in a hygienic way. Washing away your old life. To a Jew, baptism was the last thing that they did moving from a Gentile to becoming a Jew. It's the last thing that a, a secular Jew did before becoming a priest is to be baptized. There's baptismal um, pools in front of the temple, and so people are getting baptized every day, right? Okay. What was baptism under John the Baptist? He talked about it as a baptism of repentance. He's like, okay, you know how, you know that that ritual of baptism that you do where you go, okay, I was, I was a Gentile, now I'm a Jew, I was a secular Jew, now I'm a priest. You know that ritual of baptism? Yeah. What if you could actually slough off the sinfulness that you had before. What if you could say, I want to be done with that? What if I could take something that you're already familiar with and say, wouldn't it be great? And people say, oh, this makes my sins go away. Now, but somebody will come who will. This is just saying, wouldn't it be great if you could say, I don't want to be that person anymore, that sinful person. And what if somebody could come along and actually change you? I'm going to baptize you with water. You're making a great statement. Somebody's going to come who's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire and to change you and actually bring about the change that we're saying, wouldn't it be great? Peter goes, yeah, that's now. That's now. That's now. <coughs> Joel even starts, if you remember reading Joel, even starts with, by the way, this is a prophecy I want you to read to your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. This is a prophecy not for Israel right now. It's for people of God for all time. What does Peter say? In 38 and 39? That echoes that? The promise is for you and your children for all who are far off. You're here today. Do you have any family members who aren't here today because they had to stay in Timbuktu? This is for them too. Do you have children who aren't even born yet? Do you have great-grandchildren who aren't even born yet? This is for them too. Read Joel. Joel even starts off this way. Joel says, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You're the first fruits of what God is doing. Remember when, Mo when Moses shared the word of God and it came to everybody? Remember all of that? That's today. That's today. Everything that everybody has been waiting for since the time of Moses. That's today. Holy Spirit isn't doing something new. The Holy Spirit is finally doing 
what we've known he's going to do all our lives. Since long before any of us were born and long after any of our great-grandchildren are going to be born, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed one iota. This is what he's always said he's going to do. This is the day. That's pretty cool, don't you think? I think that's cool. Maybe that's just me. How would you express that to somebody who asked you about this today? So what's Pentecost all about? How would you express that? Would you go into Shavuot? Would you explain all that to somebody who goes, I don't know nothing about none of that? Maybe. Would you express it that this is the time the Holy Spirit came? Hopefully not, but it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction that we have. Okay, maybe, maybe a more point-head question. Why on earth would anybody ask you today? Oh, this is me being a jerk. Pardon? You should live such good lives among the pagans that they go, what? By the way, who wrote that? Who wrote, man, you should live in such a way among the pagans that they look at you and go, what's so different about you? Anybody remember who wrote that? That would be Peter. In first Peter, he goes, you should live such good lives among the pagans that they say, what's up with you? Could you please give me the reason for the hope that you have? What is the deal? Why would anybody ask you today? I'm not being judgmental. Being a snob, I'm being a little snob. Why would anybody ask me? Why would anybody look at my life and say, what is so different about you? And would I answer them, well, I go to church on Sundays and I read my Bible. I pray and you probably don't. Is that what's different for me? Or is there something fundamentally different about me? Would I be able to say, I move from death to life. And by the way, that promise is for you too and for your children and everybody who's far off. I was a rotten human being and you know what? I'm still kind of a rotten human being. What's the difference? I'm forgiven. Rotten human being. I'm broken, but I'm not dirty. I'm broken and I'm flawed, and God is working on me, but He's washed me and He keeps washing me. He loves me, even though I'm broken. From verses 14 to 36, Peter gives his very first sermon ever. And it's awesome. He quotes Joel and David in the Old Testament, quotes them. Because apparently he did some reading on the boat while he's a fisherman. Quotes David, quotes Joel confidently, and confidently applies them to a modern context. You know what they said here? That's this. Remember what they said here? That's this. Remember what they said here? That's this. In one sentence, in verse 36, he confidently accuses the Jews regarding the crucifixion, affirms Jesus as his personal Lord, He's my sovereign. And as the one true Messiah. That's kind of a loaded verse, isn't it? Jesus, whom you guys crucified, is my Lord. And he is the Messiah we've all been waiting for. Would you feel that confident addressing the crowd, potentially hostile crowd, half of which are saying, I just drunk. The rest of them may not like being told, whom you crucified. Would you feel as confident with such a strong gospel message in your very first sermon to apparently hundreds, maybe thousands of people. How about that? Would you? You might want to say that out loud. That was the Okay. Maybe I'll say, yep, I feel totally confident, or no, kind of wouldn't. Thank you for being gutsy, Wendy. Would anybody else like to try to answer this question? Help me out here. 
since I'm actually asking this question in a room full of 20 people who you know and like, and you're all like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, for the two, 3,000 people you don't necessarily know and who might not necessarily like it, apparently you might star stuff just a smidge bit. Maybe, maybe not. I think not. Peter's learning here. It's not about what he feels. How so? Uh, I don't know that he was super confident to get up and say this, but... But he spoke confidently. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon him huh. in a powerful way, and I think it's all kind of come together for Peter. How, how does the sermon begin, what does it say? Peter addressed the crowd. What does it say? Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter addressed the crowd. We're told. He was, what? Well, I would say that would still be the impulsiveness in him. But this time around, more the way he was designed to be impulsive. His reasoning. The reason why he was made that way. Yep. He's not scared to jump up and say whatever he he should say. Right. So, maybe the key question here is, would Peter have felt this confident doing all this a month or so earlier? A week or so earlier? It doesn't seem like confidence. It seems like a core thing in Peter. Well, he's speaking with confidence, but is it coming from a personal confidence? An attitude of Peter's natural character? No. So what is giving him confidence to step up and go, Jesus, when you're crucified, Having the guts and the confidence to do that, you go, you know what? Um, not so much. This is coming from being changed by the Holy Spirit. From being a different person, being changed into another person. This is what, what you were getting at of saying, Peter, I'm going to take all that enthusiasm, all that passion, all that exuberance, and actually give it focus. You've got great sales, Peter. Awesome standard sales. I'm giving you a rudder. And an outboard engine. Right? You know, but you want to move? I can use this. I can absolutely use everything you are. I'm not changing you away from who you are. I'm changing you into the Peter you were always supposed to be. So often, many of the gifts or talents that we have, or foibles that we have, are double-edged. They can be used for good, and they can be used to harm. Can we really, as to relate back to your earlier question, as Christians, we have a better chance of using for good when we have the Holy Spirit in us. Can anybody give me examples of anybody else in Scripture that that's true of? God used their foibles, some of which could absolutely be incredibly destructive and were used destructively, and God said, I can actually use this to do some good too. Okay, Saul, Paul, what? Samson, David. Jacob, Judah, remember Joseph's reaction, what you guys intended for evil, God used for good, right, Judah's not a nice guy, but God could still use his brokenness, I'd much rather, I'd much rather be Samson or ideally a Peter where I'm like, I'd like God to use this to do some good, than to be a Judah or a Pharaoh where God got, or Balaam where, where I'm like, I have no intention of doing anything good and God can still use that. I'd much rather say, okay, God can use even my brokenness to do good things. Yeah. What changed? Peter changed, right? Not necessarily the situation, but Peter. 
You can look at Matthew 10, 18 through 20. You can look at Mark 13, 11. The idea of changing, changing the heart, changing you into the person God wants you to be. So somebody read me chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. How would you summarize the end results of this explosion at Pentecost? What jumps out at you in those those seven verses? Devotion. They were devoted. What else? Yeah, and daily more. Okay. Amazing community. Yeah, they kept living that out. Anything else? It wasn't just, wow, wasn't that Pentecost experience amazing? I know, right? Like, no, it's just every day living in this. Not necessarily on fire with flamehead every day, but living out the spirit every day. Okay, anything else? What exactly happened that allowed for these results? Why did they have these results? Actually, I've heard people talking about if you want to see thousands of people coming to the know the Lord, if you want to see people coming to know the Lord every day, have everything in common. I mean, spread bread with one another, build a community, be the kind of people you're supposed to be. It's not wrong. Is that what's going on here? People are coming to know the Lord every day because they're breaking bread together and they're having this one sense of community and they're preaching the word. That's why people are. So, so it's the structure, right? Mm -hmm. And because they're praying, that's why they're seeing community? Or because they're praying and doing community, well, that's why they're seeing evangelism being effective? Now, please understand, you need to hear me really carefully for a sec. I think it's good to pray. I think it's good to build community. I think it's good to be doing outreach and, and preaching the Word of God. I think all these things are really good. And I think that's what we should be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if we're thinking, those are the things that will bring people to the Lord, and that's what makes the difference, then what we're doing is doing all these outward things and hoping it'll change all the inward stuff. Right? Quite honestly, we might not even be thinking about inward stuff at all. If I do all this outward stuff, I get all these outward people to outwardly come and join my outward church. Woohoo! Put that in the wind column. But all 
all of this is predicated on what Joel said, on what Peter said, on what we, what we read back in Samuel. All of this is predicated on you becoming a different person, right? Why did people come to know the Lord? Why were they praying? Why were they in community? Why were they preaching the word of God? Because the Holy Spirit was filling them, and they were living that out. If nobody comes to know the Lord because you preach, okay. There might be reason to ask why, but okay. Why were you preaching? Because like Jeremiah, I couldn't not preach. Well, why were you in community? Did, did people come, did, did your church grow because you had such a great community? No. Then why do it? Why wouldn't I? Paul says I'm I'm part of a body. Whether the pinky ever is part of painting a masterpiece or not, it's still a pinky that's still attached to the body, isn't it? Who, who cares what happens as a result of that? What happened in me? What happened in you? Are we changed? And amazingly, Peter would suggest if you are genuinely changed, and if the Holy Spirit then overflits into all the people around you, people will naturally say, what's up with that? amazing how often we work on all the externals when the externals are supposed to be an overflow of the internals. Why are you baptized? Because of what's going on internally. Why are you going to church? Because I want to be part of community. Why are you part of community? Because we're all part of the same body. Why? Because I've been changed and so have you. You're my sister. You're my brother. I want to be preaching the word of God. Why? Well, why wouldn't I? This is truth. This is awesome. This is life. Of course I want to be doing this. And amazingly we're like, oh, if I got it, I got it. That's what will actually bring about change and other people. You go, but it is. The Spirit's what brings about change in other people. That's who's doing the work. What we do should be moving along with His work. Is that changed from the Old Testament? No, it's pretty much consistent. The Holy Spirit will bring about these results through us, in us today. Why? 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 Why not? So if He does, that means we're doing something wrong. Maybe. There are times where God says, you guys are botching this. I'm not, I'm not using you for this anymore. I'm using them. Sure. But that still suggests our doing is what changes what the Holy Spirit is or doing. And I'm uncomfortable with that. Let's place him first and foremost. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you're always with us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit in us. Thank you. And I pray that there are times that we let you fill us to overflowing and that we overflow your spirit into those around us. I pray that you, you work in us to change us, and I pray that you help us to remember to let you. Help us, Lord, to be your people that don't justify doing our own thing. Help us to look internally. Help us to do that with joy. Not just contrition, but with joy. Knowing that you can, will, and want to change us into the people you sculpted us to be. Chip away at us today, Lord, and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.